Let us pray. Father, we just thank you for this day and that just no matter what's going on in our lives, God, that we just know that you're working things out for the good, whether it's here or, or for eternity, Lord. We just thank you for um, just the waves of grace that you meet us with uh, because of our faith, Lord. We just pray for things that are unspoken that might be in our hearts, God, and that we could just release them up to you. And we just pray that we can be present in this moment with you here today. In your name, amen. All right. So one thing that's kind of interesting, if you hadn't figured out, uh, a big part of uh, you know people who study theology and stuff like that, very tightly related to philosophy. So that's why a lot of things when you come to church, especially anybody who like gets really, really, really into like the academics uh, of theology, which is funny coming from somebody who hasn't gone to seminary, is you end up uh, diving a lot into things that are very philosophical in nature. And sometimes that means it gets kind of hard to like wrap your head around it and see where it actually impacts your day-to-day -day life. But there is one philosophical thing that I think is something that a lot of us have kind of seen. Maybe it's maybe it's less philosophy, less philosophy and more anthropology. So I'm throwing a lot of ology words at you today. Um, whenever our nation has ever faced any kind of existential threat, which if you think about the history of the United States, is um, a lot of it. Even though, you know, by and large today, I mean, we don't worry about another big major nation like wiping us off the face of the earth, at least today anymore. Um, it's something where a lot of our history has been kind of defined by that. And what's interesting is you start seeing this rise in very, like, militaristic trends whenever these things pop up. You saw this during the Cold War, where once the Cold War really, truly set in, I mean, not just the rise of the Soviet Union, but, you know, kind of post-World War II, you started seeing a lot of things pop up, even with a lot of, like, uh, community organizations. I mean, just think about it. A lot of these ideas of even, like, the Boy Scouts and stuff like that became, you know, really started blowing up around the time of the Cold War. And a lot of these kind of things that had more elements of regimental life in them. If you really want a good example of this, I mean, you can just think after 9-11. After 9-11, you couldn't go anywhere without seeing a bunch of uh, very patriotic stuff, which is probably appropriate, but, you know, patriotic stuff that was inherently tied to, to the military. You know, it kind of went hand in hand because that's the way that our culture kind of looks at things, which is all well and good, nothing inherently wrong about that, but it is something that's kind of interesting to note. And I think one of the areas where this became the most interesting to me, at least personally, was in just seeing how it impacted the way that people would even dress and present themselves. So during my day job in the week, I work for the Navy, right? And a part of my job, at least before COVID, a big part of it, was uh, we would go out to ships that were deployed, and we'd go out on, sometimes on the ships. Sometimes I, I got lucky, and I got to sit in Guam. Guam is not lucky. It's not a nice island. I, I kind of refer to it as like the Kmart of tropical islands. Uh, and that's ironic because uh, Guam is actually the location of the world's largest Kmart. That's a thing you know now. I don't know what you do with this information, but you now possess it. So there you go. Um, so, uh, you know, but we would go out there, right? When you go out to these ships, I mean, you can go out there and wear anything that looks professional for the most part, but 
um, you know, a lot of times you go out there and uh, you sit here and say, you know, it is a warship, right? So there are around a lot of the doors, there's like grease and stuff like that. And it's not just dirty everywhere. They're very clean. They actually spend an entire time, uh, they call like Exo's Beach Party, you know, which is like everybody goes out and like shines all the brass work all over the ship and everything. Um, just looks awful, man. Uh, but, you know, I just kind of had to like awkwardly like step over these things when people were like cleaning going like, excuse me, I'm going to walk over the stuff that you're making right now. Uh, but, you know, you're walking around there and because, you know, you're going out there for a certain period of time and all that. Uh, sometimes with your clothes, you sit here and say, well, you know, there is some attire that's useful. One of those top things that I would do, and anybody who uh, is either here or watching or anything that, that kind of has experienced this will, will become, probably be familiar with it, is I got really used to carrying these notebooks that were that size because you can get that and you can actually fit it in the small of your back so that you can use both of your hands for all of the going up and down the ladders and everything. So you'd have that, right? It's a good little life hack. And then I also had these pants. Now, these pants were not designed to last for super long but they were last they, they were built to be able to deal with certain things for a brief period of time you know so they were like rip stops so if some ripped it would only go it would only go so far they're coated in teflon and so what that meant was that if you got ship's grease on them or anything it's not these so don't look at these these are like gap jeans or something which are not fancy but if uh you know you 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 got ship's grease on them or something like that you could literally go like that, and it would just wipe off this sticky whatever grease. It was awesome, you know. It was also good because, again, I'm clumsy, and so you spill coffee on yourself, it would literally just beat up and roll off, and then that becomes one of those poor guy's problems in the morning when they're shining the chef. Um, well, so I would get back, because you probably wonder where, is, where am I going with this. Well, you know, we'd get back, and we'd have all this, like, tactical stuff, right? Um, and then we'd think, like, well, we like the tactical stuff. So wouldn't it be hilarious if we're walking around a pretty white-collar office environment with cubicles all, like, tactical up? And so, yeah, it's exactly what we would do. It's also really comfortable. So, like, we'd, like, wear all of our tactical stuff in the offices where people are, like, you know, using Microsoft Excel and stuff, you know, real tactical stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, if we're being honest with ourselves, you kind of felt kind of cool a little bit, you know, wearing all your mess. There really wasn't any purpose in it. You just kind of felt, you know, it kind of felt like, you know, again, kind of military, edgy, all this kind of stuff. You kind of got into it because it was kind of the culture that you were around. So even though you had no purpose for it, you kind of latched on to it. Um, and the only problem that would arise is that sometimes you would interact with somebody who either A, had no sense of chill about them and didn't find that funny, or B, they just kind of came from a different mindset and they would look at that and see that as unprofessional and didn't, didn't like it. So it would actually impact how they would look at you. Whenever you would turn around and try to tell them something, no matter how well you had substantiated it and all that, they always kind of looked at you and kind of, you know, gave you this like side eye because you look like one of those unserious people that, you know, walks around in office environment with, with polo shirts that actually have little loops on them right here that you put your glasses and little things over here in your pocket for your pens. Um, again, we felt very cool, but we were in fact not cool. Um, but, you know, this idea of being overly militaristic, it's something that it, it, you can see how it seeped its way into many different aspects of our national identity. Uh, it, it kind of works its way into, you know, clothing, obviously. You know, you see people who have nothing to do with the military at all. They're just in something that you would consider maybe kind of, kind of, regimental in nature, you know, uh, police, CMS, you know, first responders and everything, uh, 
You know that how many times you see somebody on like like a first responder thing and they have has like the fire logo, but they're wearing like the grunt style shirts. You know that are okay. You know exactly what I'm talking about. They have like the big American, they have like the American flag on the t-shirt side right there and everything. Uh, don't get me wrong, I'm not picking on those people because I own those shirts. Again, it's kind of like cool and funny and all that, but you can see how it seeps its way into everything. And sometimes you don't think about how that might impact other people in terms of how they perceive you. Something like t-shirts probably perfectly fine. But in like that work environment I was telling you about, it actually impacted how other people looked at what you had to say. Sometimes I think about how we live out our faith and the ideas of, you know, kind of this, uh, you know, overly militaristic aspects of how we choose to live out or communicate our faith and how that might actually impact other people. So a lot of times when I'm ha putting together messages, you know, there, there's different reasons for doing it. Sometimes it's because, you know, I have a series I'm trying to do. Sometimes there's certain themes. It's not like a series, but I'm kind of following certain things. Sometimes it's just simply a matter of, you know what, I had an interesting interaction and it kind of like spurned off this whole, you know, Joseph Pack overthinking things and going like, this would be, this, this would preach. This would be a good message. Well, you know, I was having an interaction with somebody uh, over this last week and it was kind of interesting because they started getting into this whole thing uh, about uh, Christians celebrating holidays. We're not going to get into that right now because uh, we don't have that much time. But they're getting into this whole idea of is it right, is it not right for Christians to celebrate like Easter and Christmas because it has roots and pagan ideologies and all that kind of stuff. And they were getting into all this kind of thing. And, you know, in the midst of some of this back and forth, one of the comments that I made is I said, well, you know, part of the problem with taking this hard line of a stance and wanting to whip this out on people every single time, they say, hey, you know what, we're going to go to the grandparents, go celebrate Christmas. And your response to them is, well, you know, you're being a pagan, right? You know, when you do that, you realize what that is actually doing. That idea that you are rebuking them in maybe kind of an undue way, maybe actually rubbing off in a way that is not edifying to their relationship with God. You may actually be shaking their faith in God in a certain sense uh, based on something that you don't necessarily even know to be true. And that can be very, very, very dangerous. And the comment they made to me was kind of fascinating because they went back to Leviticus 19. In Leviticus 19, you have a bunch of the, a bunch of the uh, uh, things we see as like the Ten Commandments and all that. Uh, but in there, the way it describes what we would know today as kind of the golden rule of loving your neighbor as yourself, it also mentions in there the idea of rebuking them so that you do not harbor resentment in your heart. And so they reasoned that rebuke is equal to love. And I thought that was a fascinating take. And it's something that I guess if you open up your English Bible, I can see how you might just simply read your King James and go like, well, I can maybe interpret that out of that. But think about how incongruent and inconsistent that is with the identity of Christ. Christ absolutely rebuked people. It'd be hard to argue that he didn't. But who did he rebuke? Did he rebuke the individuals that were simply going on living their lives? Did he rebuke the individuals that were just trying to do the best they can with their understanding and their situation with their own flaws and all that? Or did the rebuke come at the hands of the people who thought they knew better and they wanted to whack people over the side of the head with the scriptures? Those are the people he rebuked. Ironically, the people that he rebuked were not the individuals who want to go and spend Christmas time with their grandparents. The people he was rebuking were the individuals that are trying to chastise other people about whether they should be celebrating Easter and Christmas. Those are the people that Christ seemed to rebuke. 
individuals that wanted to weaponize uh, the scriptures, if you will, kind of militarize what they believe in their faith. And in doing that, they may think that they're doing something righteous, that they're standing up for God, that they're standing up for what is just, and that they were defending God's piety as if God needed our defense. Instead of looking at it and saying, I have an interaction with somebody and an opportunity to act to them the same way Christ would act to me. I have a set, you know, they're going to sit here and tell me about this. If I truly am convicted that there's something they're doing that's wrong, there is a loving way to do that. But if there is no love in the rebuke, if there's no object of compassion in the correction, then what use is it? And so I guess this is the important thing that I think a lot of people seem to get wrong, is they seem to want to believe that there's this aggressiveness to the scriptures, probably because it is very self-empowering if you really think about it. The idea that I can sit here and talk about, uh, you know, the fact that I know that behind me at any moment I have legions of angels, you know, the fact that, you know, I may say that I have the armies of whatever behind me and that God will, will smite the enemies. And, you know, uh, you know, I think about that praise and worship song, not going to pick on the praise and worship song, but you will think of this next time we sing it. Uh, but the, the, um, one where it has the line and they're saying like, uh, uh, you deliver me the head of my enemies, which is weird because it's a very sweet song, but you hear that line, you go, hmm, that's weird. Uh, but you know, you think about that and you go, that imagery is something we'll latch onto and sometimes instead of it being used as the metaphor for which it was written or delivered, it's used to be literal. But what's actually interesting is as I went through and I started studying things, uh, doing kind of like a mini deep dive into a lot of things, in the New Testament, your references to anything involving Conflict, fighting, military, armies, soldiers is almost none, at least not positively. There's a lot of negative references to those people who are jailers. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, references in there about, you know, armies of the world. There's a lot of things like that, but you won't actually see a lot of other references. And you might be thinking like, well, I know that there are some, there are some metaphors that are certainly in there, but I think that's the thing. The only time we end up seeing any of this hyper-aggressive verbiage used in the New Testament, it's always used as a metaphor for something other than the, than the sense of aggression that a lot of people take out of it. In 2 Timothy uh, 2, 1 through 4, we end up seeing uh, one of the few examples of this. Um, in addition to another popular one that we'll talk about later that you're probably thinking of. So in 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, we see, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in, Jesus, that is in Christ Jesus. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to, he seeks to please the commanding officer. What's interesting about this is, again, this is one of these few examples you see of imagery being used saying, you know, we should be like somebody who is a soldier, like somebody who has armor or whatever uh, metaphor you want to go with. But what traits are they taking out of this? Are they taking this fighting spirit out of there? Are they saying that we need to stand up against, you know, the evils of the world and that we need to be correcting our neighbor and that we need to be, you know, slashing down and purifying all the heretics within our church? Or are they looking at it and actually talking about the aspect of a soldier that has to deal with uh, almost this sense of common camaraderie in our trials. The sense that, you know, we are in something together, that there is a sense of suffering. That just as Christ suffered, what we are called to is not a sense of sitting on a podium with laurels around our heads and medals hanging from our necks. But instead, what we're called to is a rugged instrument of torture and death. 
That is actually what you're called to when you're called to follow Christ. It's one of the reasons why so many people would come to hear what Christ had to say, and yet he would turn around, speak the truth to them, and the vast majority of them would turn around and walk off. It was never about attracting as many people as humanly possible. It was about giving them the truth and helping them to understand that the suffering that you have to endure for today is something that is only temporary because we are fighting for a greater cause. What we are fighting for is not against the governments and the princes and principalities of this world, but instead serving something that is greater. And when you look at that, there's very little room for aggression against our fellow man. Instead, you almost have this sense of camaraderie. Even people who don't have a relationship with Christ, there is a sense of commonality that I think we should look at the lost and have. A sense of looking at other individuals who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ instead of looking at them as others. Instead of looking at them as people who are living by a bad way, people who are making poor decisions. Instead of looking at them and saying, I have pity on them in the same way that I want Christ to have pity on me. I look at them and say they are trying to make sense of this world that we live in. All of the temptations, all of the suffering, all of the pain, all of the confusion, all of the same things that cause our own faith to shake from time to time. They're dealing with that too. And the difference is that I have seen or experienced a piece, a taste of what Jesus Christ has for me because I know the Savior It allows me to be able to endure, to be able to get through whatever I'm going through today. And so in a sense, I look at those individuals and go, I don't have contentment for these people. I don't have anger for these people. Instead, I have pity and compassion for these people. And when you think about that image of a lost and fallen world, doesn't that start looking a little bit more like how Christ treated the world around him? He called out sin for what it was. He called out wrong behaviors for what it was. But was the focus the correction or was the focus the compassion? Even when he turned around and he criticized the woman at the well and pointed out all of her wrongdoings. You end up seeing that he ultimately was focused on her redemption, on, her, on, the, on compassion and deliverance of her. I think so often Christians seem to get this wrong. And I think one of the reasons why they get it wrong is because if you just look at the Bible, if you fall into this trap of saying, I'm just going to open up my book and I'm going to cherry pick whatever verses I want because that makes me feel good about myself. I feel like an empowered Christian. Then you can certainly find things there. There's a lot of awesome things in the Old Testament. I love so many things in the Old Testament because uh, there are some very, very cool things in there. I love uh, Elijah being on top of the mountain and seeing like, the power of God, you know, through like the, you know, all of the chaos of, you know, he's up on the mountain and the chaos of the earthquake and the fire and the lightning and all that. And saying God was more powerful than all that. And he wasn't in that. He was in a still small voice that was more powerful than all those displays of power. When you end up seeing that, it's amazing imagery. You end up looking at the things that are towards the end of the book of Job when you see God talking about how, how the, the, the sheer scale and magnitude of his power. He talks about all these, you know, some of my very favorite God powerful uh, imagery in there where God says, you know, okay, if you think you're so powerful, then you tell me where were you whenever I painted the stars in the sky? Where were you whenever I said where the oceans will go and drew a line and said, this is where the oceans will stop? Where were you when I created the beasts of, of the earth? And where were you when I created and counted every single sand that is on the shore? Where were you when I did all these magnificent things? You can see the utter power of God. 
And I think because that imagery is so amazing, it causes, it causes that sense of awe that we have in God, I think we're naturally attracted to it. But the problem is that sometimes in our attraction to the awe of this imagery in the Bible, we maybe get attracted to things and interpret it for an incorrect purpose, something that maybe is a little bit more self-serving. Frequently what you'll see is you'll see people quote things in the Old Testament and talk about all the times that God said something about a nation choosing him and as a result... God blessing that nation. You'll see this frequently. But again, you have to be very careful when you're taking things that were meant for specific purposes, specific people, and you just assume that that also applies to you here today. What we actually know of the Old Testament is that at that point in time, the idea of being a part of God's people, of God's children, was connected to statehood. A relationship that you had with the nation of Israel, you know, the kingdom of Israel or Judah or whatever it may be, by you identifying with this nation state, you were a part of God's chosen people. And because of that, God used instruments of the state in order to show his blessing, to show his judgment. You had things like warfare. You had things like, is the nation following me? Because nation was equal to my children and my people. And where this gets completely confused by so many Christians today is in trying to take that language and applying it to their own society today because the reality is that Christ did not come so that we could still remain shackled to the concept of a nation state in order to have an identity with him. In fact, he did exactly the opposite. He came in and said, because Christ has come, he has removed all of the boundaries that our own world, that our own flawed way of thinking has created. He has pushed those things aside and said, you are now all children of mine. And because of that, I no longer have any use for instruments of the state because I have my church, I have my people that transcend beyond those limitations. In Ephesians chapter 2, uh, if we look at verses 11 and 12 and skip over, we're going to skip over to 18. Then we end up seeing this. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised. In other words, you were the others because you weren't a part of our culture and our society, which is done in the flesh by human hands. Verse 12, at that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Jumping to verse 18, it says, for though, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. So what you can see in here is that one of the most aggressively worded things that you end up finding in the Bible, all this stuff in the Old Testament, stuff about, you know, the, the, you know, God using the instruments of the state in order to be a display of his will, no longer have any purpose in this world that Christ has now presented to us because we're no longer bound by our citizenship to a state. God does not prefer uh, Joseph Pack Christian to some individual in another country simply because I grew up in the United States. He doesn't prefer somebody who's in Serbia because they are officially, as a part of their state-sanctioned religion, a Christian nation. I mean, if that's the case, shouldn't God prefer a Serbian individual to an American individual that, you know, whose nation permits any religion you want? You can start saying quickly that these ideas that you so often see espoused by many what I think are well-meaning Christians about the direction of our country and the direction of our society and everything 
sometimes get misplaced or get the wrong amount of weight put on them. Yes, it is true that this world continues to fall to a place where it's seeking its own way. It's seeking its own wisdom. It's removing God and in removing God, they're trying to replace it with their own manufactured God, which creates confusion of all sorts of things and morals and things like gender and every other aspect of your life you could possibly imagine. These are the natural things that you could expect to happen when you remove the idea of an ultimate truth, a God from your world, and you replace it with something that's man-made. So in a sense, what you're seeing makes perfect sense in our world today. But the question for us as Christians living in this world is, is that really something that we should be spending our time and our energy being supremely concerned with? We can have our opinions. We can absolutely have our opinions. We can discuss our opinions. But in the hierarchy of things, we have to understand that what is the single most important thing is not our nationality. It's not our sense of statehood. It's the fact that we belong to a kingdom that transcends any of the boundaries that we have created for ourselves. And because of that, we are actually in this together. We are individuals that are bound into the, the, the same world, into the same existence, and we're all struggling with some of the same things. And ultimately, that should lead us to a pay, place of understanding, a sense of compassion, and a sense of wanting to give charity to individuals around us, not to a place where we view others as, as adversaries. Because if we're all fighting the same ultimate moral fight, then who is the other team? There is nobody else. It's simply us and some of us are at different places of understanding than others so the encouragement here is to look and say that we have to look at the people around us and say what what is it that i'm looking and and, and getting so angry over them about when i'm sitting here and i feel this sense of you know well that's the other that's somebody who's working against me it's somebody who's you know preaching something against my truth why is it that i may feel tempted to go to a place of anger or resentment or even if it's just a very soft form of maybe judgment superiority maybe even and i think it's interesting because when i was looking through and you know again kind of deep diving in some of this i ended up coming to this section in james where james kind of explains where he thinks that a sense of aggression in our faith really comes from. And he ties it all to one word. He ties it to jealousy, which I thought was fascinating. In James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it says, What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. If we jump over to verse 11, it kind of expounds on this too. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? The reason why I love how these two things are connected with one another is because think about what the effect is of so many individuals who maybe are kind of innately attracted to the idea of the hellfire and brimstone, you know, preacher, and think about what's actually happening there. When I turn around and I point a bony finger at the world around me and individuals, whether they be in the church or outside the church, and I say, you're worshiping wrong, you're preaching wrong, you're believing in the wrong particular interpretation of things from me, you're living in the outside world and you're living with the wrong God, when you're doing that, what what are you doing if not judging? There is absolutely a difference between calling something out, rebuking something where you see somebody who says and protests that they are, you know, living a certain way and that they're living for the truth and are actually, in fact, doing something else. That's a very different thing than looking at the world and sneering at them with an amount of discontent. 
And that's exactly what James kind of talks about right here is that when we do that, we are putting an amount of of glory on ourselves that is really undeserved. Because none of those ideas of what is moral, of what is pious, of what is right come from us. And so who are we to derive any amount of pleasure or satisfaction from telling others that they aren't doing the right thing? unless we ourselves are putting the role on ourselves of being the judge. This idea of jealousy I thought was kind of interesting because you look at that and say, like, jealousy, is that, I mean, I think about all the things that cause people to be very aggressive in their faith, and is that, is that really what it comes down to? And I, and, and I think it kind of makes sense. Because if you think about it, a lot of things that drive us to aggression can all be tied to these I want statements. You know, there's a jealousy of popular conformity. So this idea of like, I want people to be like me. I'm jealous that everybody's not like me. Everybody should be exactly like me. Whatever I enjoy, whatever I don't enjoy, everybody should be like me. You know, and if you're not like me, then that's wrong. Think about how that causes aggression even inside the church. That somebody needs to worship the way I do. And if they don't, I don't like that. And it's not a matter of like, well, live and let live. It's a matter of saying, no, that should stop. You shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't have that kind of instrument. You shouldn't have, you know, this kind of music. You shouldn't have that style of praise and worship because that's wrong. What I'm doing is real worship and what you're doing is fake worship. So you have that. You kind of have the opposite of that too, which is I want to be like other people. The idea that other people may be able to enjoy something. If I'm being honest with myself, there's a small part of me that says like, oh, I wish I could do that. You know, there's a lot of things that if you think about it, I would love to, you know, from a fleshly perspective, be able to enjoy and indulge in certain activities and behaviors and all of that. There's the the primal aspects of our physical form that want certain things. And so there can absolutely be a sense of resentment because otherwise you actually have to struggle with your weakness. And isn't it easier to struggle with your weakness when you could just ignore it and instead turn it into some sort of, some sort of uh, ideological fight against other individuals who enjoy those things that you really wish you could have? There's a jealousy of undiscovered wisdom, the fact that other people may understand things to be different than you. This is most often, you know, when I think about this, I'm, I'm thinking about people who read something in the Bible that honestly none of us really know exactly what it is. And we turn them into these like benchmarks for like you're a real Christian if you believe this about this piece of scripture. Some things seem very clear cut. Some things not so much. There's an interesting thing that, you know, again, I won't go into the deep dive of it. An interesting thing that you end up saying when you try looking at the Bible. Did you know that pretty much once you get to about David back, there is no evidence, archaeologically substantiating, blah, 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 of any of those people existing. I'm not saying they didn't exist. As a matter of faith, I would absolutely tell you that they did exist. But you know there's no evidence of them. Now, to satiate you a little bit, keep in mind, back before then, uh, anybody else in the world with anything else, you don't have much evidence of any of them existing either. It's kind of this period where there's literally a, a it's called like the Bronze Dark Age, that like no, all records just poof, disappeared. And so you don't have a lot of evidence of anything. But the point is, is once you do that, it means the things that we base our what I know-ness on start going away. And so as a result of that, there's an amount of reading things and trying to say, or trying to make sense of this. 
We're trying to understand exactly what was meant here. You know, is something false if it's really just written in a certain way with a certain turn of phrase? It's not, I'm, nothing in the Bible is false. It was all there. God, you know, to, today even, you know, you would, you would look at the Bible and say, I believe that God permitted certain things to survive in our scriptures and work through the minds of these different people and these groups who got together, did all the work of correlating sources and all that to come up with what's in our Bible. And I believe that God permitted that to exist there because this was truth illuminated that God wanted to bring to our world today. But then you have to look at it and say, but that does not mean that the way that you read that piece of scripture is precisely the way it is. It might be that there's something else there, that there is a different truth that God wants us to take out of there. Remember that the Bible is not a natural history book. The Bible is not a, a, a record of, of biographies. The Bible is truth that God has given us so that we would understand not the people in the Bible, not that we would understand the ark, not that we'd understand the rainbow, not that we'd understand the tree with the apple and all that kind of stuff. The reason why God gave us the Bible is so we would understand Him. That was the purpose of the Bible. And so in all these other things, we so often will get worked up about how other people will read and interpret things in the Bible saying, well, that's not how I know it. That's not how I was taught it. That's not how I understand it. Missing the fact that neither one of us are focusing on the right thing because what God wants us to see through his word is him, not the other things we argue about. So sometimes we can see there's this form of, of anxiety, of angst and aggression that will form between believers because we're jealous that somebody understands, has a sense of wisdom that might be different than ourselves instead of taking from it what maybe we could which is maybe there's something else God wants me to know that I didn't think of before this connects closely with uh, the last kind of form of jealousy that I kind of thought of which is it connects with the idea of truth things that we actually physically know the number of times that I have heard somebody passionately argue that something is right or is not right because they have their 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 little satchel of verses that they know, that they believe, that they've memorized the verses and all that kind of stuff. And they have those and that's how they live through everything. And then when they say, well, and because of these, I live my life in a falling way. And then you go, but how do you reconcile that with the fact that X, Y, Z? You insert something that's maybe deep or buried in there in the Bible that maybe questions what they have. And that causes an amount of anxiety. It causes, it almost like threatens how much you actually know your God. And if you are finding your strength, if your firm foundation in God is based on your own human understanding, then that can be earth shattering. And all of a sudden, you either have to A, question yourself and grow, which is hard, or you can just lash out at the person, call them an unbeliever, call them somebody who, you know, is just trying to question you, who's judging you, and you can point the finger because then you don't have to deal with any of your insecurities. In any of these examples, I think what you end up coming down to is that phrase insecurity. These ideas that we look at the world around us and we look at the things that cause us to be jealous of things we have, of things we don't have, of things people know, things that people understand. We look at these things and they force us to actually confront the unknown. They cause us to have to face our limitations as human beings. The fact that we can only understand so many things. And once you remove all of those things that we traditionally find our sense of self-worth and our sense of satisfaction, our sense of confidence in, once you remove every single one of those, all you're left with is God. And I think that's the point. The whole point of what God has left us with, of what God communicates to us through the things we see in this world, through the ups and the downs, the things that we say, God, I don't understand what your purpose in and all this. Sometimes maybe because God is trying to say, yeah, and, and that right there where you're at, that's the extent of what I want you to know is that you don't know it. 
because it's not about you. It's not about the action I take in this situation. It's not about what I did in that person's life. It's not about what I did for Moses. It's not about what I did for Peter. It's not about what I did for, you know, Adam and Eve or a garden or an ark or any of that kind of stuff. It's about me. Because ultimately, I am the supreme of glory. I am the supreme of righteousness. I'm the supreme of power and grace and compassion. So if I was concerned with anything else, would I even be God? I have to be concerned with myself because I am the ultimate in everything. And so because of that, I want you to be ultimately concerned with me, not with you. With my understanding, not with yours. With my plan, not what your intentions are. And so when we look at how we end up being driven in our own faith, when we interact with people inside the faith or outside the faith, we have to ask ourselves, what are our actions pointing towards? Are they pointing towards God or are they pointing towards all the people that we think that God worked through? Or worse yet, are they pointed at us? When we find that our faith is based on the works of people and the works of ourself, then ultimately it's going to lead us to an angry place because eventually we're going to have to wrestle with the fact that we are not everything that we think God is. We are limited <laughs> to, to, to a ridiculous degree compared to who God is. And so if you try to find your faith and your security and your satisfaction and your contentment in yourself or a faith based on yourself, you're going to find yourself frustrated and you're going to get to a place of anger. And so how do you sit here and imagine that you go to, you know, you, you get to a place in your faith where you can reach contentment, where you can not be spun about what other people think, that you can hear somebody interpret something different than you and it not bring you to a place of, well, I need to let them know that they're wrong. And that's when you start realizing that it's not about you and it's not even really about that other person that you're hearing talk. It's about God. If God gives you the opportunity to speak truth in their life, speak truth to their life. If God gives you an opportunity to show them grace and compassion, show them grace and compassion. Whatever God has presented to you, that's what we should be concerned with. Not how somebody else wants to live with their life. Not with, you know, all the second and third and fourth order effects of a decision somebody's going to make or a government or whatever it may be. We should be concerned with the opportunities to demonstrate the virtues that Christ told us in the lives of other people around us. That is the supreme thing that actually matters. It's arguably the only thing that really matters and everything else is secondary to that. And so as we sit here and we look at our own phase and we assess how people see God in our own lives, we have to ask, what do people see lying in our wake as we walk through? Do they see chaos and disorder and anger behind us? Or do they see a path of peace? The last bit of scripture that I'll go to is this. When I sit here and I talk about militarizing your faith and everything, probably one of those things that you think about when people talk about the, you know, the, the, the sword and the shield and the tunic and all that, you know, the, 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 the you know, weapons and armor of, of your faith and everything, right? Well, I want to highlight one particular part in this section. If you go to Matthew um, chapter 26, um, sorry, I'm going to go to a different thing. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 15. This is what we end up saying. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest. 
and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. That right there is where I want to stop. Because amidst all of this imagery of armor and of swords and of weapons and things that seem like that they are full of aggression, we can see God instead looking at this and saying, the people who are beside you are not your enemies. There is an adversary. There is a thing that is called spiritual warfare, but it is not any of the people that you are seeing around you that we may be directing our aggression towards. Instead, you end up seeing how we're sandaled. And you see that we're sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. And so if that's the case, that leads me to say, when people see my footsteps, when they see me walking, how do they ultimately see me go? Do they see me go geared up and ready to you know, smite the heretics and to root out all of the evil people of this world? Or do they look in my wake and they see the peace of Christ? Because ultimately that's what we're called to do. Not to sit here and fight to defend God as if somehow he needed it. But instead to serve out the mission that God has called us to do. Which ultimately is a mission that we see borne out in the life of Christ. A mission of grace, peace, love, and compassion. Let's pray. Father God, as we think about the opportunities we have to to show people who you are in our lives, we pray that you would help to quench that fire that sometimes builds up when we see things that we can't reconcile with and instead bring us to a place of peace and contentment. Help us to be able to understand who you are in our lives and to understand who you are in other people's lives as somebody who is love and somebody who is grace and somebody who is compassion instead of being the the a, a bludgeon that's used to beat people up on the side of the head with you know what we think is right. Help us to understand that we are limited people and that you are infinite. And that in doing that, our desire and our passion should be showing people you and not showing people our interpretation of you. Father God, we just pray that you would help us to be able to get over ourselves when we need to get over ourselves and that you would help us to have humility when we need that little piece of humility so that we can become something ultimately better, something more impactful in this world that desperately needs something more than one more worldly voice. Father God, we love you. We pray these things in your son's precious holy name. Amen.